Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Arden and I have been having conversations lately about what kinds of the things make living at home during this time when other restaurants and forms of entertainment may not be open to us, what makes being at home worth it? And so I'm going to pose Arden a question. What is your luxury item that you go to when you are finding yourself stale at home? Well, I think I am now going to have to give up my luxury item, which is very upsetting to me. But for a long time, as many people do, I found comfort in food. And I discovered a very small chocolate shop called Beacon Hill Chocolates in downtown Boston that I absolutely love because their chocolate is delicious, but I, they also let you go on the website and pick out individual chocolates so you can read the description. And so I would spend probably at least 30 minutes going chocolate by chocolate, adding it into a box and having it mailed to us. And I would say for the duration of the pandemic, I was averaging a box a week. The unfortunate news for myself and for my family is that we switched to a new wonderful concierge physician, but she has us on a very new and improved, according to her, nutritional plan, which does not involve a box of chocolates a week, unfortunately. So we are now back to Ezekiel bread and avocado, and once a week we can have dark chocolate, but only if it's 70% cocoa or higher. So, so my comfort is gone as of this moment. That's great. My comfort food is also the thing that I go to when I'm needing something, and that is pizza. Any pizza. Frozen pizza, delivery pizza, pickup pizza. (laughs) It doesn't matter to me. Pizza. So anyway, we have a great guest coming in today. Arden, are you ready to introduce him? I am ready. Um, So welcome, uh, Dr. Jim Grubman, to the show today. I don't think there is a guest that I could imagine with a more appropriate background for the topic of this podcast. He is a family wealth consultant. He's written a number of books and articles. He serves as the curriculum expert and chair for the Ultra High Net Worth Institute. He works with families. He's worked at financial services institutions, and he understands both the psychology of families and the complexities that come with being a high net worth family. So welcome, Jim, and I'd love for you to share with our guests a little bit about how you got into working with families of wealth. Well, thank you for having me. Diana and Arden. It's great to be here. And, you know, we go way back and have gone through quite a bit in the last 10 years. So it's just really very gratifying and enjoyable for me to be on the podcast. I have an interesting history that who whoever would have known how I'd be sitting here at this point in this way. I was a psychologist and was trained as a clinical psychologist and neuropsychologist worked in healthcare for the first half of my career. 
But one of the major factors in my life was that my father, who was a successful businessman in, of all things, the scrap metal business in Northeast Ohio, growing up in Canton, Ohio, he went from literally nothing. He was, both my parents are Holocaust survivors, and my mother's family brought them over after the war and gave my father an incredibly menial job just kind of to help make work and to provide some income for the family. And because my father was a very capable, brilliant guy, he worked his way up in the business and then in another family business to become quite an expert in certain types of metals. And then just as I was about to go off to graduate school in psychology in 1980 in the fall, he didn't feel very good one day and he dropped out of a heart attack by the end of the afternoon, which plunged my family into a very different situation. What it did is he left my mother some money as a, through his business dealings, investments, and insurance and things. And I, I was going off to psychology graduate school. So my life split. And during the day in my professional work, I learned all the things about being a clinical psychologist. But in my personal life, I was learning about trusts and estates and investments and, you know, affluent things. This was through the 1980s and 1990s, and eventually I began to be able, during my work with patients, to ask questions about things like family businesses and money issues and provide some counseling that was kind of on the side. And by the late 1990s, I had shifted my practice, and this was the dot-com era and sudden wealth syndrome and the rise of the development of the psychology of wealth. And so I was sort of in the right place at the right time, and I have ridden that wave unbeknownst that all this was happening around me ever since. So here we sit. Thank you. So can you identify a family that you worked with that is particularly memorable as to either sudden wealth syndrome or the culture of shift the culture shift that happens when somebody becomes a family of wealth it's funny that you say the culture shift because as both of you know my work and my writing has very much focused on it wealth as culture not as class not as money economic level but that different economic levels are really different economic cultures and for those who start off in middle-class life, as I did, and over the course of lifetime come to the land of wealth, proverbially, one way or another, that those who, are, who come to wealth, which actually is the majority of the wealth population, have many characteristics of immigrants, not unlike my parents who came from Europe. And so I've had that perspective on it for a long time. I can think of several families. In fact, most of the families, individuals, or couples I've worked with have been struggling in one way or another with the fact that it really is a major culture change. I'm trying to think in terms of trying to pick one out of the background of all that. I can think of one family many, many years ago where they started off quite middle class and then became very successful through a family business 
but both the father and the mother still in their minds when I talked with them they said what I've heard from often which is you know we're still just middle-class people we just happen to have a lot of money and when their children wanted to make some different choices get some of the benefit in a reasonable way they saw it as the children wanted to be gross overspenders and they said no and when I worked with the entire family there was a lot of conflict in the family and struggles over what was a reasonable level of spending with the parents thinking that their kids were extravagant and the now grown adult children trying to point out to the parents that the things that they were proposing about taking a little bit better vacation, living in better living conditions, you know, relaxing a little bit, that they were not being greedy or overspending. When I helped the family see that the parents still had the mindset of where they came from and saw everything through that lens. It helped to not only the parents realize why they were carrying things over, but to gain some perspective on it, to, in a sense, step aside and, and to look at it, not just be caught up in it. And the next generation was very relieved because they stopped feeling blamed and labeled, judged, and the family was able to come together. And I facilitated many family meetings where they basically began to make choices collaboratively. And it turned the whole situation around for the benefit of the G3 children who were coming up. And they really got the, the greatest benefit from it. So that's just one example I could think of. That's great, Jim. And I'm sure, you know, in so many circumstances, families are so thankful to have somebody like you come in as an objective resource and kind of reframe the way that, you know, parents are thinking about issues or children are thinking about issues. You know, I'm curious on the opposite end of that spectrum, is there a situation or a family example that you could give where with now some more experience and hindsight, you wish you had handled differently? Oh, yes. I'm the kind of uh, consultant where I'm much more attuned to the ones that got away or the ones where I did something wrong than the ones <laughs> where it seemed to go well. I would say I worked once with one quite large multi-generational family enterprise who had a business that was quite substantial, a several billion dollar business actually, and they were pillars of the community. Their name was known in the community and so was the business. But because much of the wealth was tied up in ownership shares and not necessarily liquid wealth, the family, I mean, they, they lived reasonably well, but they were not super wealthy. And so they were not used to, they thought of themselves as perhaps upper middle class. They were then approached by a large global conglomerate to buy the business. And they agreed to it. And in the time between that agreement and when the actual sale occurred and the liquidity event, as it's called, occurred, they engaged me to help prepare the people in the family for what was coming down the pike of significant liquid wealth that was going to come into each of the households and branches of the family. And I worked with a committee that they had. They were quite excited about the whole 
analogy of what's called the immigrants and natives analogy. Immigrants are those who come to wealth. Natives are those who are born and raised with wealth. And we planned a workshop in quite detail and everything was going to go fine. And then we did the workshop and it fell flat to our great surprise and my dismay. People said, well, I don't know if this really applies to us. And, you know, we really shouldn't be talking about the wealth. We should be talking about the good that we're going to be doing. And, well, our lifestyles shouldn't really change and whatever. And they just did not want to approach the reality and and discuss and plan for the reality of what was coming. So the workshop ended as kind of a downer and people feeling like, well, you know, that wasn't really for us. And we were puzzled by why it, you know, it didn't really work. And the uh, key that we later found out in doing debriefings as to what happened, ironically, came from the in-laws, the marrieds in who were sitting in on the family meeting who were kind of quiet because they were absolutely not surprised. I talked with one of them and they said, oh, yeah. This was ridiculous. Of course, they're going to be very wealthy. And they just, it's like they cannot wrap their heads around a complete denial about what is coming for them. They were just not ready to listen to it. But everything that you were saying was right on target. And, and it's in-laws looking in from the outside. We knew what you were talking about and, and, you know, were very interested in it. But this family just was not ready emotionally to hear what we had to talk about or to learn what they needed to do. And so it taught me a, a lesson about that. Is it scary for families in those situations? Absolutely. What do you think, yeah, what do you think the barrier is? Well, it's funny because consistent with the cultural model of wealth, you may know that you're moving to a new place, but you may not be emotionally ready to be a citizen of the country or to leave behind, and this is the real issue, to leave behind what is comfortable. It's scary. I mean, if you think about times maybe when you have had a big move and you had to leave behind the familiarity, the identity, all the, the, the comforts of you know your friends, your companions, and move to a new place, even though you may know it's objectively a better place and you have great opportunity, you know, it tugs at the heartstrings. And for some people, they just don't really want to look at that. It is too scary. Mm -hmm. And what the expectations of that change might be on them, probably. Yes. Yeah. You know, we, we have to adapt to change. And emotionally, it's often much harder than we think. Agreed. So for those who are supporting this group of people, whether they are the immigrants or the natives, what kinds of things, what are the tips that you would like them to know in terms of working with families of wealth? Well, I think for people like, you know, advisors, for office staff, for, for everybody who is either supposed to be a guide to the land of wealth or a facilitator in, in helping people adjust and adapt, there are several things. First of all, it's important to keep in mind that many of the advisors and staff and people who help are still themselves from the middle class. They may work in the land of wealth, but they are not citizens of the land of wealth. They visit. Mm -hmm. 
And so for many people, there's still quite a bit of what is sometimes called wealthism or stereotyping and bias about those who are rich people. And they may not always understand the complexities or even individuality. They often see them as a relatively homogeneous population, those rich people, and they may have ideas about it. And so one tip for those who support the population is keep in mind the individual and be careful of labeling as a group making generalizations. Each person who has come to wealth has their story. And I just actually read a great quotation this morning from Muriel Rukeyser, a female poet from the early 20th century, who said, the universe is made of stories, not atoms. And I thought that was a great quotation that each person does have a story of how they got there, what the journey was like. And so try and see people as individuals who are trying to cope often without much of a map. You know, many people who become wealthy are just making guesses and trying to do the best that they can in a very new environment that they may not have been very well prepared for. Sounds a lot like parenthood. (laughs) Yes, it does. As a follow-up to that, I think, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting for whether it's a therapist or some other kind of advisor is to deal with their own issues around money and wealth. And what does it mean to support these families with the kind of beginner's mind that you're describing, Jim? So I Mm -hmm. guess my question is, you know, how do you advise people starting out in the field or, or perhaps who are on a case, they're very experienced, but something they know is triggering them? You know, are there techniques that you would suggest that people use in order to examine their own biases and determine, you know, a path forward in situations where you know, there there's some of their own emotions coming to the surface? No, well, that's a really good question. It's very important because often I hear stories from clients of how they were treated uh, by somebody or someplace in a wealth management firm. Sometimes if there's a substance abuse uh, problem in a rehab facility or that the things that they encounter, and it can be, it can be quite painful. I would say that when you start to feel, number one, you start to hear in your head that you're using language that is a group identity language as opposed to individual language. When you start hearing things like, well, you know how those people are, or, well, you know, rich kids are just trust fund babies. When you start to hear the stereotyping, which is really at the core of prejudice, be very careful. Something has triggered that. Often uh, one of the main triggers, there's a term that was coined many years ago, what's called hostile envy. And in most societies, general society has a hostile envy of the rich. And one side of the coin is the resentment and hostility and anger. And the other is the envy and the wishing that you could be rich yourself. When hostile envy raises its head and you start to see it as a group, stop and think, what is triggering this for me? And very often it may be some stress, constraint 
in your own life, if you have limitations because of money, the hurt and the anger that rises up from that, that gets projected onto the wealthy. So knowing your own reactions, being able to watch them, and in general, knowing your own money story and money messages is fundamental to being able to work with this population. That's a great point. So we'd like to end our podcast with this last question, which is, what is something you would like our listeners to consider? What's a bit to consider? Hmm. Interesting question. I guess what I would say, and this may be surprising to many people who are not wealthy, which is that wealth is not what it seems. It's much more complicated. And it's much more complicated to adjust to, to navigate, learn about, and over time to adapt as a family. You know, most people who do not have significant wealth really focus on the benefits or what they would have relief from if they became wealthy. They'd be relieved of money stress and bills and anxiety and and all the many things that come with, you know, being uh, with money scarcity. Most people don't think of the complexities they gain in decisions, relationships, life. You know, wealth makes life easier, but relationships harder sometimes. And so I would say to listeners, be curious. Don't be judgmental. Stay open. See people as individuals and try and understand as best you can. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jim. It's been a pleasure. Thank you both for having me and for this kind of conversation. This is great. Thank you to all our listeners for joining us for another episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. And we look forward to you tuning in on our next episode. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.